Hello and howdy everyone. Welcome back to another Adventures in Angular. My name is Alyssa Nichol. I am the Angular Developer Advocate for Kendo UI at Progress and I am super pumped about today's episode. With me as panelists, we have Brooks. Hello. <laughs> Brooks just offered the best smile and you can't see it. So just imagine the most goofy and wonderful smile you've ever seen. And we also have, sorry, I didn't say Brooks Forsyth. And we have Chris Ford with us. Greetings, as always. Excellent. And our guest, the most wonderful, Christian Liebel. Did I say it right? Did I do it good? Yeah, perfect. Ah. Excellent. So tell us a bit about yourself. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Christian, or just call me Chris. I'm from Germany. I work for ThinkTecture, which is a consulting firm. So yeah, my day-to-day -day work is helping our customers to develop applications with Angular to make sure that those applications run fast and look good and work great. Uh, basically, that's my job. Apart from that, I'm a Google developer expert and a Microsoft most valuable professional, both in the web-related categories. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. That's awesome. GDE and MVP. Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so today we have a very juicy topic that could literally span like the next 10 podcasts. So, <laughs> so tell yeah. us a bit about what we're diving into. Yeah. So uh, as you just said, uh, performance is a really huge topic. So we could, for example, start on infrastructure level performance, such as HTTP 2 or HTTP 3 maybe. Uh, we could talk about delivery performance. Uh, so for example, using service workers or using efficient caching and so on and geo-replication. And then we make our way to web performance, which starts with DOM optimizations and painting optimizations, for example. And then we start at Angular performance, which typically refers to the runtime performance of apps and the load time performance of those apps. And I would suggest that we start with runtime performance now. And yeah, we'll see. Maybe we dive into other topics as well, but I think that would make a great start. So you suggest runtime. Is that because it is the easiest to tackle or is it because it's the one with like the biggest win for like working towards per a more performant application? Yeah, sure. Sure. I think that is. But it's also, I think the area where most customers of ours have, have problems with. So typically our customers develop an application and most of the time it will work great. But in some cases it will not. And they will face the problem that the application starts to get really, really, really slow. And typically it's, yeah, it's a few common places that you should check and they typically are the places where you can tune Angular's performance. So excited. So tell us about these places because it does feel like kind of a big mysterious hole in the ground where you're like, do I just start poking at this spot and see if I get something? So yeah, where, tell us your tips. I'm so eager to hear. Yeah. So basically, before I start about actually tackling those performance problems, mm. um, I always like to, to start talking about how Angular internally actually works. And I'm not sure who of the listeners is familiar with other frameworks. So um, I'm not sure if, if there are .NET developers also listening, but there was there was a technology called WPF, Windows Presentation Foundation, or XAML in, in general. And all those frameworks have a pro or offer something. First of all, they offer something. They offer you to bind data to the UI. That's the big magic that those frameworks give us. And that makes our lives as developers so easy. 
Mm. Now, the problem with those uh, those frameworks is that they somehow need to detect when such data field, an underlying field, has actually changed to then go and update the UI. And that's actually the crucial part. And now I come back to the WPF technology uh, because I uh, Im uh, implemented WPF apps before I then switched to Angular. And WT uh, WPF is really, really tedious for developers if you are used to Angular because what you as a WPF developer had to do was uh, is you needed to inform the framework when a change happened. So mm -hmm. in your model, you needed to call something that is called I notify property changed. You needed to implement an interface and then call the race property changed method on it. Wow. And that's <laughs> a tedious task, as you may imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to actually remember, okay, I need to tell the framework that I've changed something. Now, Angular is a bit different. And it's different in that way that you do not need to tell the framework that a change has just happened. The framework just magically knows. And exactly that's the most common problem, I would say, how Angular developers run into performance issues. It's related to exactly that, to change detection and the way how that magical data binding internally works. I see. So you think most of the runtime advice that you have is related to optimizations around change detection in Angular? Yeah, okay. right. And yeah, not, not necessarily optimizations. I think it's just good to know how the framework mechanics internally work so that you as a developer don't work against the mechanics of the framework, which happens really quickly. So I would just say I, I start and I tell how, how change detection works in, internally. So I think it's, it's pretty easy in Angular. You just place a data binding somewhere. So double curly braces, right? And then just yeah, name the field, the underla underlying data field that you want to bind to. And now Angular takes care of updating that field whenever the uh, underlying value changes. Now, how does Angular do that? So first of all, each Angular component that you write has during runtime an accompanying um, change detector. So the Angular components form a tree and there's a form of shadow tree, so to speak, uh, which mimics the shape of the component tree. And that tree holds the change detectors. Now, whenever Actually, I'm so Angular... glad you're getting into this because I wanted to know more about this shadow change detection tree. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> so, so basically, it's just looks exactly the same as the as the component tree, but instead of holding components, it holds the change detectors for each component, so okay. to say. All right. Now, whenever Angular detects a change, it will run a so-called change detection cycle, and it will do it once. It will start at the very top and then run uh, all the way down to the bottom. And that's a change detection cycle. Now, typically, this is done once during developer time. It's done twice. And then we and then the framework checks if there have been changes in between. So basically, you should always aim for production mode because then the CD cycle only runs one time, which makes it twice as fast, so to speak. So in development time, it's that way to, to see if something interferes with the change detection process and if someone tries to circumvent this change detection process, which could then lead to a view asynchronized, to an asynchronous state of the view 
during runtime. Which, which of course, leads to my favourite error in the whole of Angular, the expression changed after it has after been checked. After it has error. been checked, right. I tell you, if, uh, I, if, I get, if I don't get one of those in, in a week, I feel like I've, you know, my, I've not been doing it right. Yeah, and it's really important that uh, the developer mode does it that way, right? Because it could, have, it could produce pretty bad bugs during runtime and make your users very unhappy. So that's why this double CD cycle has a good reason. And that's also why I should aim for production mode, of course, because it won't happen there when it's actually not necessary. Um, I totally get what you're saying. It's obviously going to be twice as fast because it's not running the change detection cycle twice. How long does the change detection cycle take to run? Or does it, is it completely vary based on the size of your application? Yeah, right. So it's uh, it depends on the number of bindings, actually. So how many bindings you have on your on your site. That's one part of the equation. The other is how often your change detection cycle runs. So we can tackle performance by either reducing the amount of CD cycle calls and, of course, to shorten it. The application does not run twice as fast, obviously. Only the change detection cycles run roughly, then only uh, called half of the time. So it's, yeah, so it's actually good. Back to the cycle, um, as I've said, for each change, we run a single cycle from top to bottom and in one direction. So there's no way back. For example, you can't have cycles in, that, in this scenario, so it's only done in one direction. Now, as you've said correctly, Chris, developers should aim to reduce the number of bindings which are shown on the UI, and they can do it in a in different ways. So first of all, you shouldn't show components that are not visible, for example. You can remove them from the DOM if they can't be seen. If you have a grid, the grids are typically that scenario where people run into performance issues because you have thousands of bindings maybe in a grid. What can help there is virtual scrolling, for instance, right? So you only show, again, the rows that are currently visible and maybe render 10 or 20 following rows, but not the entire grid with its 2,000 rows or whatever the amount of data that you have. That's the one part. The other part is you should also avoid binding to computationally intensive getters of functions because they will call for each change per default. And so if you, I don't know, have a really complex calculation that is, that is done when you're calling a function, that is called each time when the change detection cycle runs. So back to the question, how long does such a cycle take? Again, it depends on the amount of, of bindings that you have. And it's recommended to have this change detection cycle as short as possible. And developers should aim for change detection cycle duration of 16 milliseconds at most because that's the one frame so to speak for 60 for 60 hertz so if it takes longer your application will look as if it would freeze so just to recap you're saying for one change detection cycle run you want to hit 60 milliseconds or under yes and how are we like timing this how do you see I'll watch yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a really uh, a good question because uh, we have some, some support from the Angular framework here. There's a thing called Enable Debug Tools, and you can call that during the module bootstrapping. And when you call this method, you uh, get some command line tools, which you can execute uh, or which you can call, and the developer tools. So when you have your Angular application open, you can just hit F12. And then in the console of the developer tools, you can use command line debug tools. And if Are you then, all of these uh, new as of nine or have they existed? No, they've been around for, for a longer time. I okay. cannot exactly say when they have been introduced, but it's a long time already. Okay. 
So what you can do then is on the console, say ng.profiler.timeChangeDetection. And this method will then measure the duration of one change detection run. And it will do that for either 500 milliseconds or five change detection cycles. So if your CD cycle takes really, really long, it will do it for five times at most. And if they're shorter than that, it will run for a maximum of 500 milliseconds. And then you can see the specific time of a change detection run, but don't forget that that duration may change um, depending on the view that you are. So again, on a view with less bindings, the CD cycle will be shorter, ideally. And on maybe a 10,000 line grid, it will be tremendously higher. Yeah, so we also have debug support from the framework for that, for exactly that reason. And I also always recommend to start running that debug tool first. So if you our customers face um, performance problems, it's a really good recommendation to just run that debug tool to see if you have actually a change detection cycle problem to eliminate the chance that it's uh, something different. And if you see that a change detection cycle takes really, really long, then you could take some of the measures that, yeah, maybe we can talk about today. So that's, is that like the first thing you do when you're on like a new project and you're trying to help them figure out why is their app so slow? You check out how long does it actually take to run a change detection cycle? And that'll let you know if you need to dive deeper down that path, basically. Yeah. So there are typical signals uh, for Angular related performance problems. And those are if you have a mouse move binding, for instance. So if you move your mouse and then the app performance drops, that's a signal that it's a problem related to Angular. If you have 2D or 3D visualizations in your application and then the performance again drops, that's also a hint that's actually related to Angular. I was just imagining you like going through and like literally counting the bindings. Well, you have 52 bindings in this view. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This makes more sense. (laughs) Actually, how do we reduce the number of bindings, right? Like if if you've got a problem, you've got got too many bindings. What can you do about that? Because quite often we have the bindings because we need them there, right? Reason, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds, it yeah, sounds so like maybe it's wrong. For fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I never ran into a problem when actually, when the view just makes sense as it is, right? So if it's really the, the, the required amount of bindings, then typically you should not run into issues. So you have never, re- let me get this right. You've never ran into a view that was like perfect and had exactly what it needed in the way that it needed it. You're saying like, that's never been the case. That's... Uh, it, it, well, it, it depends. So, <laughs> <laughs> I but, lo- No, I yeah. love it. There's always more to be done, right? You might you know, you know who we can blame for that though, right? That's the Ooh. designer's fault. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> I'm not the developer. It's so, not my so, fault, mate. Yeah, they told for, me for typical use fine. cases, it makes sense and it works. Again, I think it's it's rather it's it's rather programming oversights. I think that then oh no, no no not even oversights. It's just yeah a wrong way of programming. But I hope that we can get to that. So now let's get back to the data binding thing that I just talked about in the beginning. So as I said. Angular, in contrast to other frameworks, for instance, magically knows when something in the application happens, so when it needs to needs to, uh, yeah, to refresh the data bindings. And Angular, therefore, uses a library. This library was written by the Angular team itself, and this library is called Zone.js. It's also open source. It's, you can check out the, the source code on GitHub. And what this library does is it provides an execution context for asynchronous JavaScript. 
and it behaves as a meta monkey patch. Now, these are great words yeah, and great terms. <laughs> and when you have a look at there's, that at the first monkeys. time... Okay. Monkeys are involved. I, I, right. I, I thought it was that. hamsters. I need you to say that whole <laughs> sentence like one more time. <laughs> yeah, so right. that's what I thought when, when I checked out that GitHub page for the first time. So what does execution context mean? Execution context means that Zone.js basically tries to find out whenever an asynchronous operation starts and when it ends. So that's basically the execution context. Then the second term here was a meta monkey patch. So what a monkey patch is, is you change functions of a system during runtime. You patch out a method, for example, you could remove it completely or you could change the behavior of that specific method. And now zone.js combines those two. And what it does is it monkey patches several browser functions, such as set timeout, for instance, or set interval. And it then adds methods uh, to those browser functions so that zone.js now will know whenever there's an open asynchronous task, for example. So that's how those two terms then come together. And that's how zone.js yeah, then works. And there's a lot of advantages to that. So for instance, we now know how many pending asynchronous tasks there are. I'm not sure if someone of you um, use Protractor, for instance, and Protractor always waits for the Angular app to synchronize, and that's done using the zone. So basically, we check, is, are there any, outs yeah, any asynchronous tasks that are pending? Then we wait until they are complete. Give us some um, examples of possible pending asynchronous tasks. Yeah. The most common mistake when you try to use Protractor is that you start an HTTP call, for example, directly. Oh, no, sorry. HTTP call would work. But if you start a time, uh, sorry, an interval, for example, on the application boot, then this blocks, blocks off Protractor because that interval will never finish. So I was really surprised how many of our customers actually have clocks in their application. So we can check the current time somewhere in the UI. It's pretty interesting. I don't know why, but uh, obviously uh, some of their customers need it. Right. Um, and and <laughs> typically that's the problem, yeah, because those intervals go forever. They never stop. And so Protractor cannot synchronize. Oh, wow, that's, that's really fascinating. I would not have imagined there'd be that many clocks in applications out there. Because I'm like, yeah. yeah. I have my phone, right? Like, but no. <laughs> what, I mean, what, what are people using clocks for? I mean, is it so the user, like, because I mean, I can see a clock here on my, on my computer screen. If I'm using the application, surely I can see the time on my desktop. That, yep, sounds, that's, that sounds very early internet era. Like you had the clock on it and like the flashing text. I mean, <laughs> you know, my husband, he works in the hotel industry building like iOS apps and web apps and they obviously have things like that especially if you're like on an ipad in the hotel room and yeah. like you want to have the time somewhere on the interface so that kind of thing makes sense but i'm with you chris on the you know if I, it's a web app and i'm like it my time's right there in the corner well, you could be so. on the phone right we, we get, or, yeah right. a pwa right <laughs> Pois. Yes. Pois. Pois. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so uh, actually it turns out that there are legitimate reasons for it. So if you take the app full screen, for example, 
uh, and, and lots of our customers have, have full screen scenarios, uh, then it of course makes sense because the Windows clock or your macOS clock then disappears. So it okay. actually makes sense. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's still interesting for me to see that many clocks. I would have never expected that. Yeah, so that's one of one, one performance pitfall, right? Because as I just said, Sound.js monkey patches the set interval method. So for each second that the clock has, uh, yeah, that, that the clock has to be updated, your change detection cycle will run. Oh, that and that's nightmarish. of course pretty bad. How, what do you yes. do? like for <laughs> this? How do you how do you not break your clock, but also not do that? What do you, what do you yeah. do? Don't put a clock in. <laughs> Then you have to uh, to do one of the strategies to to improve performance, and that is to disable the zone for that, either for that specific use case. So, for example, we disable the zone for the clock, uh, on, or to disable the monkey patch entirely, which is mm, yeah, which um, it's not necessarily the best option. Would that be but global? I would as talk well. about if, that. You, if you say disable the monkey patch, are we saying like right that is that is out for your entire application? Right, and that has a different oh. disadvantage then because this also disables change detection. So if you are calling set interval in your application and you blocked it, then change detection will no longer run. So maybe you can already see in where this goes to, right? So yeah. um, you you have to sort of decide between that change detection magic. And scenarios where it can lead to a really bad user experience. Well, I'm assuming if you disable monkey patching everywhere and you no longer have change detection, you have to then manually do it yourself, correct? Yes. So, okay. It's and not like we sounds, can just be like, <laughs> no change detection, <laughs> we're fine. Okay, yeah, you, can, <laughs> you can absolutely do this. There's a switch uh, when you bootstrap the Angular application to completely, um, yeah, to completely turn off the zone. And then what you would have to do is call application tick yourself, which will then refresh the app. So yes, you could turn Angular into a mode where you as a developer would have to take care of triggering a change detection manually. And then at that point, you're like, why am I using Angular? Like, Yes. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds awful. Like, we, why, why, do we, why do we just start clearing up our memory as well? You know, Chris, is there yeah. a suggestion that doesn't make me want to hate Angular? Like... <laughs> Like, is disabling the, because you said the very first option, not disabling monkey patching, but disabling, was it just change detection for the Turn off the zone in a particular area. Okay, well, first of all, how do you turn off the zone for a particular area? And second of all, is that like a, is that going to cause us problems, issues? Yeah, so um, the issue that it may cause in in all ways uh, and in all scenarios that we will talk about is that your view can then get asynchronous compared to your model, right? Because we dropped out of change detection in that for that area, for example. Uh, and so when we change something, it may not be reflected on the UI. So that's always the risk. And that's also why Angular, why Angular developers should know about that. They should know about the me- mechanics of this. So change detection does not come for free. It does not work just magically and make everything right, but it can lead into those uh, pitfalls. So if you turn it off on that zone, let's say you make a clock component, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you turn it off just, you turn it off by the component, I assume? 
You can, yeah. Uh, so uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, for each component that you have, you get an, a change detector. And what you can do on the change detector is to call the detach method on that on the change detector. And then your component will not be part of the change detection process anymore. Uh-huh. Of course, you have to you have to make sure and then uh, call the detect changes method when something changes. But yes, that's one way of disabling the change detection for on a component level. That's one way of doing it. Is that the change detector ref you have to inject? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. That's interesting. So, Presumably, yeah. though, also you're gonna the change detection cycle is gonna run a little bit before you're able to make that call, right? It's because your component's gonna fire up and that's gonna run before you're able to switch it off or no? Mm, I'm not directly sure. I could imagine that you can directly inject. Yeah, you can inject it uh, during the during construction time, I think, and could then disable it right in the constructor. Uh, yeah, okay. At least I could imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing that I wanted to say to, to Zone was that monkey patches should be clear now, but what is a meta monkey patch? Zone.js does it for nearly anything that can happen inside your browser. So for HTTP requests, for set intervals, set timeout, for at event listener, um, for a geolocation update, and so on and so on. But for example, if you're using Cordova, uh, then Zone may miss some of those events. And then again, the application will not update automatically. So... Why would it miss some of them? That's weird. Because Zone um, patches most of the browser events that can happen. But if you're in a custom environment and Cordova is such an environment, then it can just, it just doesn't know what could happen. And so it does not get informed. And so it will not start the change detection process. I honestly, (laughs) if I was working in such an environment, I wouldn't even know where to start looking like to see that like events are missing basically and that's why it's either slow or behind or not happening like <laughs> yeah and it's yeah that's why that's why zone is so cool because it works so magically but that's also why it can produce such weird bugs and uh, and performance issues it's as i said that that magic does not really come for free are you freelancing or moonlighting or maybe you've thought about going out on your own Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Have you all heard the business about getting rid of zones entirely, like in the future? Yeah, so so partly, actually, that is something that's being discussed. So if you're building a web component, for example, with Angular, you try to reduce the footprint of those of the components. And I think still, still as of now, Angular web components built with Angular are still very large compar- uh, compared to other uh, to web components built with other technologies. And that is because uh, we have to put at least a subset of the framework into that web component as well. And that's what makes it a bit larger, and so on. Uh, and yes. a web component better, though, only like comes with comes with added <laughs> Angular for free. Well, for for extra download time. Yeah, it's well. It depends. So first of all, yeah, it's cool when when Angular is there, and I think they're even smart enough to just use the existing instance if it's already there. Uh, but I'm not really sure about that. But the problem is when you have web components built with Angular and with React and with Vue and with Stencil, and with Lit Element. And when each of those web components brings its own 100 kilobytes library code, then still the application will get 
bigger than it should be. And so, yes, for Angular Web Components, not sure if it's if it's already the, the final version or if it's already done now, but I think the idea is that you will not have a zone ship with it and that you as a developer take care of um, invoking the change detection process for yourself. So, so when people are talking about that, they're not talking about getting rid of zones for everything. It's specific no. to web components. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I also can't imagine that that would happen because, again, that's that's the big advantage of angular and i think it also it, it makes it so easy to start with this framework and it will work perfectly for most of your use cases but again as i've said so for example for high frequency events such as mouse move event or for visualizations which have a request animation frame method involved which is called 60 times a second also that method would call the change detection 60 times uh, a second, for instance. And that's typically those scenarios where, yeah, the performance in Angular applications can drop. So many of these scenarios are just giving me like, cold sweats. Like, yep. <laughs> I didn't, I just, I love my change detector because it just, it's my, it's like my number one selling point of Angular when, when somebody is talking about other libraries or frameworks and, and how they, they have to do all of their manual state management and such. And I'm like, I just don't have to worry about that. And, but now you just, you're making it sound like this is like turning into a Stephen King novel where like the change detector that I've been in love with for all these years is actually like some horrible murderous psychopath lurking in the background of, uh, of, of my friend. So it's like, it's like when you own a robot and then they go to take over the world. Right. right, like, right. Yeah. 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 Were you nice to your robot or were you not? Yeah. That's what you got to ask <laughs> about. Find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when the reckoning comes, you'll find out if your robot thought you were nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, and that's what I said. It's it's important for Angular developers to know about that side effect of uh, of the change detection process. And I would agree, change detection is great, and I love Angular still. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's important to know those pitfalls so you can avoid them. Yeah. Did it take you a long time in this position to get comfortable with like? It sounds like you're constantly tackling the hard problems. And for me, that yeah. would just be like, I'd just be nauseous all the time. But you seem very mm-hmm. calm, cool, and collected about these problems. So did it take you a long time or did you have you always just been like, bring it on? <laughs> yeah, so, so first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, so typically we are the people that deal with the more uh, complex problems. So we typically don't do um, pure implementation, uh, but we work together with our customers, which is what we call guided implementation, or yeah, we, we draft architectures, for example, for their applications, or deal with the very specific problems, certainly is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, again, typically you see some signals and you know, okay, that's problem X uh, or Y or Z, and then you know what to do, essentially. But also, of course, the problem comes in different editions and variations. And um, you have to tackle problem A differently than problem B, for example. So identifying is, it is simple. Solving it is more complex then. Well, I, I very much appreciate you coming on and bringing on your expertise from everything that you've seen. I think we have like... 15 more minutes to dive into. So I didn't know if you wanted to go mm-hmm. more further into change detection or sure. if you wanted to hit on other things that you've seen. Yeah, we sure can. Yeah, what I said was 
different strategies of, of how to uh, disable the zone, depending on the use case. And I think we talked about blocking off entire patches, right? So we talked about that set interval example for, yeah, not really for the clock, because I think it's, it's overkill here. The disable method is good for the 2D scenarios, right? Or 2D, 3D visualization scenarios. When the internal library is calling request animation frame, again, which happens 60 times a second, uh, second if you have a 60 hertz screen, and then leads to a 60 hertz change detection rate. So in those scenarios, it's, it's good to just disable the entire patch because it's hard to isolate the code in the library, for example. Sometimes you, don't even, can't, you can't even change it or it wouldn't make sense to change it. So then it's reasonable to say, okay, let's just disable a request animation frame entirely. You can do that in the polyfills TS file. The code to do that is already there. It's just um, commented out. And if you want to disable that patch, you just remove the comment and yeah, then the line is applied. There's also, there are also two other lines. One is for dropping or unpatching certain events such as scroll or mouse move. Again, high frequency events, they happen really often. And you can disable the patch on so-called on properties. So on click, for example, if you don't want to patch them. And so if you're uncommenting these in the polyfill file, then that is application-wide. Yes, right. So for the entire Angular app, yeah. So that's that's one strategy. I typically use that if uh, the application uses visualizations. All you have to do is make sure that nothing will be changed in the model during the call of request animation frame. But typically that's, again, hidden from the developer anyway. So yeah, you don't get into temptations. So again, we have talked about just dropping sound completely. I have no idea where this is helpful. I, I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's it's possible, but I've I've seen nobody that that actually uh, used. You've that. never had a client that you were like, "We're gonna no. take out zones, just all yes. of them." Yes. <laughs> okay. Cool. Yes. So for, for all of the prob- uh, projects I've seen, and it's been a lot now by now, nowhere that would make sense. All right, so that one. Then disabling a certain patch. Then we talked about detaching a component from the change detection Mm -hmm. cycle, which will not make it a part of change detection. And that makes sense if you want to keep the DOM nodes in the view. So if you want to let the, if you want to keep the component alive, but you want to disable the bindings. Typical scenarios are you have some sort of, of panel which is temporary, temporarily shown and it can be can be hidden, uh, or if you have some some debug tools that you only show conditionally, for example, but you do not want to unload the entire component. In that case, it makes sense to just detach the component for the time it is not visible. That's a strategy for those cases. So, what does that look like? How do you like you say like is the component in use? No, then detach like and you're just doing that inside of a parent component mm, yeah you could be or maybe even the component knows for itself this, that could also be i think a good example a visual example would be chrome dev tools so when it's not tech it doesn't work the same way technically because dev tools are completely unloaded when you close them and i think they are completely reloaded when you when you open them so it's not exactly the same but it's the same visual effect so sometimes you have something that is on screen and sometimes it is not and it may be quite computation intensive to bring it back and so in that case it just set display none on it so it disappears uh, from the screen but you keep the component 
alive internally. And if you want to show it again, you just set it to display block or whatever, and then attach it to change detection again. And then it's it's exactly the way it was before. But you need to do it and forget it. It will <laughs> it might uh, run. You like bring it back again. visually, but nothing's connected, and you're like, Ey. yeah. <laughs> why? Why exactly. would you? Why would you do that rather than like get rid of the component with an NGF? Is it? Is it just because sometimes you might not want it to like reinstantiate when it comes back? Or yeah. Now let's imagine, uh, and that's an actual use case that you have lots of entries and lots of um, form inputs, for example, and the, the form inputs are, are styled in a custom way, then it's... Yeah. Sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, then we'll just, you will see it. It's noticeably slow to open that. And then it's better to just keep it and, and hide it for a moment, bring it back later. It feels cool. cleaner to me to like hide it than to completely destroy it. It sounds like you're on the opposite end of that fence, Chris, with like wanting to... Yeah, like I'm, I'm offended you would even suggest that. <laughs> yeah. I uh, no, I don't know. It's like, that's yeah, that's it just, what it's there for. I, yeah, <laughs> I guess it just... It, I never really thought of that as being, you know, an anti-pattern, you know? It just, it, it seemed to be the sensible thing. And it it's kind of, and maybe this is just sort of where I've worked, but it seems like that's the sort of thing that would be picked up in a, in a, in a code review, right? It's like, Oh, why are you, why are you hiding it with CSS? You should be using NGF, but no, it's, it's, it is interesting. I hadn't really ever thought about, you know, the, the intensity of bringing a component back in, especially mm-hmm. with your horrific Frankenstein form component <laughs> example. Yeah, so so that's, no, no, thanks. That's a typical it depends scenario, right? So of course, and and you're absolutely right. For ninety nine percent of scenarios, doing it that way would be wrong, right? So and yeah, basically, if if uh, the Angular developers out there do not have any performance problem, then there's no need to to try and optimize something. If everything works smoothly, don't change it. Just leave it as it is. <laughs> that's the most, like, most if it's not them. broken don't fix it yes but exactly could you say yeah. like you could you argue that by the time you're noticing that you've got a performance issue you've got a really bad performance issue like you could you could have an unperformant app without actually realizing it yes so and that's again why i suggest to uh, that angular developers should take a close look at change detection and side effects to performance and they should understand it right and then you can write uh, angular applications which will not run into those into those problems that's the inherent danger so to speak of uh, of the change detection but again most of the time it it goes it, yeah it is just it's just perfect and and our customers do not face any issues it's basically just just a handful of of customers which run or ran into those kind of of problems now i want to get back to another way of, of disabling the zone, another scenario. So for example, now we talk about the, the clock, right? So your maybe unnecessary uh, clock in your application that is ticking every second. And as I've said, it would trigger a change detection for, uh, for each second uh, that has passed. So what you want to do in that uh, scenario is you can conditionally turn off the zone. And uh, that is, and you can do that by injecting the ng-zone symbol or service into a component. And on that injectable, there's a method that is called run outside Angular. And everything that you put into a Lambda expression 
inside run outside Angular will not run in the zone. So again, will not be change detected, but it will also not cause any unnecessary change detections. And so for the set interval example, that's the right choice to go with. And again, uh, that's also a method that fixes the protractor synchronization issues, right? Because Angular would wait for the app to synchronize. It will never do when you're using set interval, right? Start that right from the start. And using run outside Angular, it will just leave the zone, so to speak, and will not be picked up by protractor or whatever is waiting for uh, completing that operation. So that's another scenario. And what you can also do is go back into the zone by calling ngzone.run. So if you're outside and want to go back in and then update your bindings, for example, you just call ngzone.run. All right. So that's some of the techniques. Now the question could be, what can yeah, what can we as, as Angular developers do, do better then? Or what's a way how we can structure our components in order to avoid problems like that? And there's, I think, a quite nice way of doing so. Um, and this now uh, brings the so-called change detection uh, strategies into the game. And typically, when you write a component, uh, the so-called default change detection strategy is used. This strategy uses the standard Zone.js way of detecting changes and then updating it. And there's an alternative to it. And this method is called this is called the on-push strategy. And now what this strategy does is it restricts the change detection to changes of input parameters of that very component where you place the change detection strategy on. And what this does is that it now reduces the number of checks that have to be done for this uh, component as a part of the change detection cycle. And so what I do typically is use that strategy as a default for all of my components, right? Yeah, as a result of that, yeah, your component only changes when it, when it needs to, for example, because an input property changes. Now, again, this can lead to other problems, right? Because if you're doing an asynchronous operation, for example, querying data using a service, that's not necessarily a change of an input property. So again, if, to avoid to run into asynchronization scenarios, we have to inform the change detection mechanism again. And now fortunately, there's something called the async pipe. And what the async pipe does is not only automatically unsubscribing from an observable when, something, when you leave the, the site, when you're destroying the component. Well, it does not only subscribing you to that observable, but it also calls the mark for check method on the change detector and it will automatically update your view if that uh, binding which has the async pipe assigned changes so my tool belt for the applications that i write is using on push plus async pipe and that prevents or avoids most of the most of the performance pitfalls that you can run into so that's how you update the app with on pushes by using the async pipe to watch. Yes. Okay. You could also you could also call a mark for check yourself, but I think that in that case that's that's an anti pattern because you have to remember that and your new Angular developer that just joined your team, for example, and hasn't heard of all of that stuff may forget it. So 
I think that the async pipe is, is a good choice here because it won't work when you just try to attach the observable to a binding because that just doesn't make sense, right? Uh, but it will uh, when you use the, the async pipe and automatically also those change detection stuff is, is correctly handled for you. That's how I create new projects. I'm pretty sure some people would disagree and and say just start with the default and just um, call me when you face performance problems for example that could that's also a possible <laughs> option for the problem uh, for the projects that i that's yeah like that i in, start it's like building in yeah. clientele right you're like no don't use on push <laughs> just, just call me <laughs> is there a way yeah, to set be. the cli like if you're making components with the cli to set it for on push only yeah yeah um, is there? yeah last time i checked it it wasn't uh and I'm pretty sure it still isn't. Okay. So you have to you have to per, put it yourself. Com- per component, you have to make sure. And- per component, yeah. yeah. But I'm not sure how you do it, but typically I tend to write the components entirely myself, right? So I create the TypeScript file and I mean, it's just an add component and that no, is already you too much. Make, you're, yeah, <laughs> you're, you remind me of Ward Bell whenever I was talking to him on a show one time. He uh-huh. was like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that much about the CLI and I'm like, why not? Like that's how do you make components? And he was like, I just copy paste the last component that I made. And I'm like, what? (laughs) He literally is like new TypeScript file, copy paste, sorry to erase all that. And I'm like, oh, Wow. Okay, so so that is that is something different. The, the problem for me is that I tend to <laughs> so I create a new component uh, using the CLI. Mm. So next I delete the CSS or whatever a CSS less file because I yeah. don't need it for that component. So I have to delete the file and update the uh, the module decorator. Uh, sorry, the component decorator. So then mm, that component is really small. It doesn't need tests. So you drop the tests file. <laughs> and uh, it, it also Wait. doesn't need the, the default content of the template. And it There's... also doesn't need on init. So basically you're removing everything that was just created by the... <laughs> but you didn't have to remember the syntax for, and... you know, at component, whatever. There are oh, flags so for all of that. That's you so could put simple. The, you put the CSS in line. You could say no tests. Like that's all part of yeah. the CLI that you can just generate. Okay. Yes. Yeah. If you're, you're writing right. like two lines to instance yeah. your component. Yeah. Then, yeah. Leave it all there. Leave the yeah. blank CSS file there. I actually quite like right, starting off writing the files myself. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, certainly... When I do use the CLI, I only use it for components. Like I always do, a, if I'm doing a service, I do that with a you know new file. Mm-hmm. The, but like literally, the only reason why I like to use no, the two reasons why I like why I use the CLI instead of creating it myself is one because I do actually like the way it goes and puts all the imports into the module for me. That's yeah. quite good. But the other one is because I really can't be bothered to to set up the the spec file. I like the fact that the CLI will just get that. I'm on, done for me. I'm on like, Chris's like, side kind of where I'm like, of what you say, you know, delete like, the spec, but yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I am not, I cannot be doing with new file, my component dot spec. And then it's like, right, what do I have to import? Like 15 things. And how do I mm-hmm. set that up? Like, yeah, you're right. You, we should just do no, no tests and then don't use CLI. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Ma- I, I don't know. Making the HTML file. It, it's tedious. You know, with with the name right after, even mm-hmm. if it's empty, it's still annoying. And then you have it. to write, and then you have it to is... manually go p my component works. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right. You also you also have to add the components to the module. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely more to it. Yes, um, yeah. I think it's just probably I just got used to it <laughs> to do it that way. No, I, I'm I'm I'm. Don't get me wrong. I'm totally on your side. I think I, I would I would prefer to do it that way. I just it's it's the spec file. I can't be mm. back. I haven't got time enough time in my life mm-hmm. to set up a spec file. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, we are reaching the top of our hour. Uh, is there any mm-hmm. other quick bits that you'd like to get into, Chris? Yeah. Um, so I think we've covered yeah most of the runtime performance I've, uh, I'm stuff. just so impressed because anytime I've ever heard about runtime performance tips, it's always just change it to on push. That's what you should be doing. And you literally gave us a million other things that you can do. And then at the very end, you're like, oh yeah, and then there's on push. So like, I'm just so impressed with all the tips that you were able to give us today because uh, a lot of them were new for me. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially, you should you should pick it wisely. That's so yeah, and you should know uh, what op- what options you have. And I hope that I uh, helped our audience here a bit today. Yeah. It's super fascinating. I would I would love to ask if it's a short story. I guess um, how how did you get into this as your as a specialism? Because you know you you just blown the lid off so many things that are. I just didn't even know existed right in this framework I've used for years. Mm-hmm. We're using Angular JS and Angular for a really long time, and so we also were one of the first um, actually developers to use the framework when it was in its bloody beta state, right? <laughs> or alpha, even even alpha state. Now we that started is a, implementing a badge with it. That- you can wear with pride, you know. I worked with in alpha, like that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. That and so, cool. and so we we saw the parts of the development of that framework, and so when you're the first, uh, one of the first ones to write applications with it, you also are the are among the first that run into issues like those. So consequently, you need to dig into the source code, find out what the problem is, and then you stumble upon all of that stuff that I talked today. And so now, now how, how does PICS actually work? I think, okay, can you tell me? Yeah, so we just go around and see if any of the panelists have PICS. And then we will end the show on your PICS and your contact info. So how people can find you. So Brooks mm-hmm. or Chris, do either of you have PICS for today? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community. And specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. I, I just say I love the fact that we have a guest who has initiated picks themselves. I, I think I think that should be first. the benchmark. Uh-huh. All no, guests should a, say, right, let's a, do picks. It's an absolute first. It was a beautiful segue. And I'm just like, I'm over here like, yes. Like yeah. I've been doing podcasts for years. And you are just so easy to work with, Christian. Thank you for like, it's just beautiful. It was a beautiful segue. I mean, me now, like us calling attention to it makes it less smooth, but. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Look at at these rookies. Right. Yeah. So picks, uh, Chris and. Yeah, I'll pick. I've got two picks. My first pick is putting putting clocks in your applications. (laughs) 
That's my first. I'm just first thing I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to raise the PR. They, why we don't need a clock in this application? Like, yeah, you you think you, you do. do, and here's how to do it. Yeah, properly. and here it is. And here it is. <laughs> And then my more sensible pick is, uh, as we record, we're recording this um, on the on the first day that um, UK lockdown is starting to ease, um, hashtag second wave. And so last week I went to Ikea and it's the first time in like three months that I've been to a shop that wasn't a supermarket. And I'm, it's a big leap. To... That's not just like, I know, you know, right? a mom and pop shop. You went to the mother of all shops. I know. I know. I had to go as well. I've got um, a not quite two year old who just trashed my bookcase. And I've been I've been waiting for Ikea to reopen because they they want to charge for delivery like 60 percent of the cost. Oh, of the yeah. Bookcase. Yeah. No, like, Ikea yeah. delivery is. Yeah. No, good. Like, no, I don't think so. But so I went to Ikea, a social distance like a boss. Um, uh, <laughs> and, but anyway, my pick, my pick is just doing something a little bit normal it was really nice i mean it was a bit it was a bit scary and i had to queue for like half an hour to get into the warehouse which is like a bit bit crazy but um yeah just doing something normal it was it was lovely mm. and um i'll never do that again <laughs> what about you brooks you got anything I, I have a dog who's barking in the background now because the kids came home that's my pick uh also i'll pick sidecar the mac little application that you can get your mac screen to go onto your ipad i usually have a laptop but lately i've been using a mac mini so while i'm being cheap and not buying two monitors uh, i use the ipad as my second monitor which has been really cool to hold the web console and that's about all you can do with it but it's good awesome awesome uh, my pick is i've been twitching a lot with my fellow advocates at work so twitch.tv slash code it live uh Weekly Wednesday afternoons, I'm there, but also just like randomly dropping in for shenanigans. So check us out. And what, what time on a Wednesday is that? I want to I want to drop in and and just troll you. Oh, time zones. Ah, uh... no, in in a nice way, you know. Make it Just start yelling other frameworks. Yeah. That my coworkers are always like, "Hey, let's let's meet," and I'm like, "Yeah," and I'll give them a time, and it's not in their time zone, and so I'm like, "It's really bad." I just I always have okay. to use. Oh, I mean, it's not no. going to be in my time zone. Whatever you tell me, I'm going to have to Google it. Central, and we're going to have to do the math on that. But 2 p.m. Okay. Central on Wednesday sounds like it might be past my bedtime. I'll I'll, I'll Google it later. <laughs> All right, Chris, other Chris, the guest for today. What do you have as far as picks for us? Yeah, my pick is Pokemon. So when I was nice. a kid, I used to play Pokemon, and uh, recently nostalgia kicked in, and I wanted to play Pokemon Silver again. So the problem is that after 20 years, the internal batteries have all run dry because what those cartridges have is, well, flash, flash storage was too expensive back then. So they have SRAM and that uh, storage needs to be backed up by a battery. And now 20 years later, those batteries are dead. So also my safe game was gone. And I was just so, so sad that I lost my, uh, my, my uh, safe game. And so then I had to buy some soldering equipment and some new batteries. And now tonight I will fix those dead batteries in my old Pokemon You, you could just play it on the browser. Like, what is on right now? You bought soldering equipment so you could fix your cartridge and play the original. Yes. <laughs> so happy. Okay. Right. And Pokemon Sword and Shield. Was... No thanks. Where's my Where's my soldering iron? 
<laughs> my Game Boy. Yeah. You're going to play it on a Game Boy as well? Yes, of course. Game Boy Color, the traditional classic. Are you going to get the wire thing. where you could, you know, battle your, like, friends and transfer Pokemon? Yes, the link cable. Yeah. Yeah, the link cable. Yeah. Yep. Those got banned right. from, uh, you know, yeah. recess at my school. Oh. It's very, like, what? Know, it's bad. <laughs> And basically what it, what it showed me is how crazy uh, the technological development is. So that oh, was yeah. just 20 years ago and flash <laughs> yeah. storage was too expensive. Crazy. Are you going to upgrade the cartridge? Are you going to put an SSD in it? You should. <laughs> uh, I have to check uh, how good my soldering skills are. I guess they are not, <laughs> not too great. Yeah. This bad boy is I... not breaking again. <laughs> I just found you on the Twitters. I expect some sort of like picture of the soldering in action. So, yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Is Twitter the best way to like follow you, learn yeah. what you're up to for the, the fans out there? Yeah, right. So I think Twitter is the best way. And it's just uh, my name in one word. So it's uh, at and then Christian and then Liebe, which is I-E-E-B-E-L. Yeah, and then you should find me. Oh my goodness. What an amazing show. Do you have any other parting words before we close it out? Gotta catch them all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the best. That's the best way to add this. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.